Well, good morning, Mountain. Welcome to Mountain Christian Church. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're in this thing called the story. We're in chapter 22, and we're finally kind of turning the corner and starting the New Testament. Uh, so today we get to hear the Christmas story, which is really exciting. And well, I feel like you guys are a little distracted. Well, I need you, this is a really important message, so I need you to really pay attention, okay? So anyway, it is, uh, it is odd to be preaching the Christmas story in March. Um, what is it? Is it the hat? Well, listen, it's a Christmas story, and this is my Christmas hat, so deal with it, okay? Um, and it is funny to be preaching the Christmas story in March, and I was trying to decide if we're three months late or like nine months early, and I think we're definitely nine months early, so I just wanted to say... Uh, take that, Walmart. We're the first ones to roll out the Christmas stuff this year. So, um, but I do feel like y'all are still distracted. So I guess I'm gonna. I guess I'll take the hat off. If it is, it really is the hat. I'll take it off because if this, if this is gonna get in the way of this, then I'm gonna put it to the side. That might be a wise thing for us to do today. So. Um, now, it really is kind of a funny thing to preach the Christmas story in March, but I think it's a really great thing. I think it's an amazing opportunity that God has given us to look at this story without all of the clutter, maybe with some fresh eyes, right? Like, we can look at the Christmas story and experience it without all the distractions of family pressure and travel schedules and shopping lists and financial burdens and the party circuit and 10 extra pounds because of that and, you know, uh, creepy elves staring at us from the mantle and weird guys with weird hats and freezing weather and snow. Oh, no, wait. <laughs> March 16th is going to be a white Christmas. Uh, but apart from that, without all the clutter, maybe we can look at this story today that's uh, set within the larger story that we've been going through, right? We've, we've gone all through the Old Testament. We've seen how for centuries God has been revealing himself and his purposes uh, to and through his people Israel. And it's been a, uh, a roller coaster ride. If you've been around for that, you know what I'm talking about. And if not, I just want to say this is a perfect time to be jumping in. It really is. Uh, get one of these, get in a group, and dive in with us as we enter into the New Testament. That, that is actually a very legitimate way to start studying the Bible. Maybe the best way. Go through the New Testament and then come back later and uh, pick up the story of the Old Testament that we've been going through. Um, we also experienced last week this, this 400-year silent period between the Testaments, where God, uh, for 400 years or so, uh, gave no word through the prophets. There was no inspired Holy Scripture written. And um, we, wanted, we, we realized that God was silent, but he wasn't absent, right? And so one, one of the things that he was not doing, he, he, he didn't just get, get angry at the people. We've seen God get angry at his people. But he, what he doesn't do is give them the, you know, pout and give them the silent treatment. Uh, God is not passive-aggressive like that. He's not immature. He, he is honest and direct with us. And what God was doing through this time of silence was something very purposeful. You know, he had tried the flood and miracles and judges and kings and prophets to get through to his people, and it wasn't working. So he was, maybe he was just deciding to give them a little space and time. Maybe this will be the thing that will bring them back to me. But even more than that, you know, God was, he was doing something else. He was wetting their appetite. He was setting up some anticipation because God had made a decision. You know, he knew from the very beginning that we were going to need a Savior one day. And he was waiting as, he, as we kind of played out the story here in our lower, lower story lives. He was waiting for just the right moment in history to make the big move. And, and, and now was the time. It was time 
to send his son. It was time to send his very self to us in order to finally break that cycle that we've been feeling and send the story off on its new and ultimate trajectory. It was time to send the king, not just a king, not another one in the long line of goofball kings, right? He sent the king, the king. And so just imagine for centuries the Hebrew people have been, you know, this anticipation is building. They've been waiting for the true priest, the great prophet, the great king, the righteous judge, the rescuer who's going to come and save us from our troubles. And they've just been praying and waiting and enduring and yearning for the king to come. We sang it, you know, oh come, oh come, Emmanuel, please, please come, God, to be with us. Because they know this. They know that when a good king sits on the throne, there can be joy in the land. And, and then it happens. And that's the story uh, that I want to tell you today. And, and so I'm going to, part of what I'm going to use to do that is this really great tool. It's just a beautiful little book that I love. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's great for kids, but it's great for all ages. I read this book for my own benefit sometimes. And, and this author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, she just, I'm going to borrow some of her beautiful words, and you're going to see some of the beautiful artwork. We're going to try to experience the Christmas story in a fresh way today. So it had taken centuries for God's people to be ready. But now the time had almost come for the best part of God's plan. God himself was going to come, not to punish his people, but to rescue them. God was getting ready to wipe away every tear from every eye, and the true party was just about to begin. Now, we actually have three different gospel accounts of the Christmas story. Like three different cameras positioned in three different places looking at the same thing. We hear from Matthew, Luke, and John about the Christmas story. And maybe you're saying there's four gospels, right? What about Mark, right? Mark doesn't, doesn't write a birth narrative. There's no Christmas story in Mark. And we don't really know exactly why. I, I look forward one day when we're all in heaven together, I plan on finding Mark and asking him, I'm going to say, Mark, why no birth story? What's up with that? And he, he'll say, I don't, I don't know if he'll come back with some deeply theological answer or if he'll just say something like, hey, dude, paper was expensive, okay? I don't know, and it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We have these other three awesome accounts. So we're going to start with Luke, okay? Uh, Luke writes primarily to the Greeks. He's writing to a Greco-Roman audience, and they wanted the facts. They wanted documentation. And Luke, he's a physician, so he's perfect for this job. He, he writes in uh, one, chapter 1, verse 3, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. And that's what Luke does. He gives us several clear snapshots of Jesus' life and, and his birth. When and where and who was there, these kinds of things. So we'll pick it up right here. Everything was ready. The moment God had been waiting for was here at last. God was coming to help his people, just as he promised in the beginning. But how would he come? What would he be like? What would he do? Mountains would have bowed down. Seas would have roared. Trees would have clapped their hands. But the earth held its breath. As silent as snow falling, he came in. And when no one was looking in the darkness, he came. There was a young girl who was engaged to a man named Joseph. Joseph was the great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of King David. One morning, this girl was minding her own business when suddenly a great warrior of light appeared right there in her bedroom. He was Gabriel, and he was an angel, a special messenger from heaven. When she saw the tall, shining man standing there, Mary was frightened. You don't need to be, to be scared, Gabriel said. God is very happy with you. 
Mary looked around to see if perhaps he was talking to someone else. Mary, Gabriel said, and he laughed with such gladness that Mary's eyes filled with sudden tears. Mary, you're going to have a baby, a little boy. A little side note here, when we, uh, these days we can uh, find out the gender of our kids beforehand, right? Through technology. And I remember when we chose to do that, we're kind of planners, and so we chose to do that. There was a few people that sort of kind of looked down their nose and said, oh, you're, ru- you're ruining the surprise. And I just, I just kind of thought it would be fun to point out that Mary and Joseph found out, so... Maybe that settles that, right? <laughs> Just kidding. Back to the story. Okay, so Mary's going to have a baby boy, and he says, you will call him Jesus. He is God's own son. He's the one. He's the rescuer. The God who flung planets into space and kept them whirling around and around. The God who made the universe with just a word. The one who could do anything at all was making himself small and coming down as a baby. Wait, God was sending a baby to rescue the world? I mean, that sounds crazy, right? Well, unless you've been around for these 20-something weeks when we've been going through the story, because then you might remember that this same God, he chose an old geezer named Abraham and his barren wife to start a nation, and he chose a stuttering, reluctant murderer named Moses to stand before Pharaoh and lead God's people out of slavery. And he chose women, in spite of their subjugated, low place in society, like Deborah and Rahab and Esther, to lead and save God's people. And he chose an overlooked little runt of the litter named David to be a great king, and a simple farmer named Amos, and a weepy, depressed guy named Jeremiah to be some of his greatest prophets, and on and on and on. And so it's really surprising when we hear God's going to send a baby, but then sort of it shouldn't be, but it kind of still is, because... This is God coming to earth in the form of a baby, born in a barn to an unmarried teenage peasant girl and her blue-collar husband. But it's too wonderful, Mary said, and felt her heart beating hard. How can it be true? Is anything too wonderful for God, said Gabriel? And I'm not going to, I'm going to jump in and out of this book. I would love to just read you every one of these words, but, but we're going to kind of zoom through some parts. Mary She trusted God, and it happened as God said. And nine months later, she and Joseph set out for Bethlehem. And as you probably know, when they got there, even though this was a town full of their relatives, they couldn't find a single place to stay. And so they ended up bedding down amongst the animals. And so there in the stable, amongst the chickens and the donkeys and the cows, in the quiet of the night, God gave the world his wonderful gift. The baby that would change the world was born, his baby son. Mary and Joseph wrapped him up to keep him warm. They made a soft bed of straw and used the animal's feeding trough as his cradle. But that was fine because they went on Pinterest and got some great ideas for a shabby chic look. (laughs) Oh, no, it was actually just an old feeding trough. And they gazed in wonder at God's great gift, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Mary and Joseph named him Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us because, of course, he had. The same night, in amongst the other stars, suddenly a bright new star appeared. Now this is the part where God, like a proud parent, he just can't wait to spread the news, right? And so so what does he do? Who does he tell first? Well, he tells, oddly enough, a bunch of shepherds. And these guys, in their day, they were just like nobodies, okay? The, this book describes them as uh, just scruffy old riffraff. 
but that's who God chooses. And he sends an angel and then an army of angels uh, telling of Jesus' birth and singing praises to the newborn king. And it says that the shepherds stamped out their fire, left their sheep, and raced into town until they reached a tumble-down stable. And upon arriving, they caught their breath. Then quietly, they tiptoed inside. They knelt on the dirt floor. They had heard about this promised child, and now he was here. Heaven's son, the maker of the stars, a baby sleeping in his mother's arms. This baby would be like that bright star shining in the sky that night, a light to light up the whole world, chasing away darkness, helping people to see. And the darker the night got, the brighter the star would shine. That's a beautiful story, and that's just Luke's version. So now we get to talk about Matthew. Now, Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, okay? So his account is just full of fulfilled prophecies. Every chance he gets, he shows how Jesus is the long-awaited king. Matthew 1.1 says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We, we heard Eric sing about it, right? Um, this kind of stuff, fulfilled prophecy, genealogy, this was really important to the Jewish people. Now, meanwhile, far away in the east, three clever men saw the very same star, the star that God had put in the sky when Jesus was born. They knew it was a sign a baby king had been born. And again, I wish I could tell you every detail, but basically what happened is these guys packed up immediately. They loaded their camels and set out on a long, long journey until they reached Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was by far the most important city for miles around. And as anyone can tell you, that's where a palace would be. And kings are born in palaces. So that's where they went. But they were in for a surprise. They went to see King Herod. Surely he'd know where this baby was, but he didn't. In fact, he didn't like the sound of a new king. It made him cross. He didn't want anyone to be king except him. But Herod's advisors told the three wise men what was written in their books, what God had said about the baby king. Go to Bethlehem. That's where you'll find them. So they made their way to the little town of Bethlehem, eventually finding the humble house of a carpenter. But it wasn't a palace, and there weren't any guards or servants or flags or red carpets or trumpets or anything. Did they get it wrong? Or was this what God meant? Sure enough, in that little house, there sitting on his mother's knee, they found him, the baby king. The three men knelt before their little king. They took off their rich royal turbans and gleaming golden crowns. They bowed their noble heads to the ground and gave him their sparkling treasures. The journey that had begun so many centuries before had led three wise men here to a little town, to a little house, to a little child, to the king God had promised David all those years before. But this child was a new kind of king. Though he was the prince of heaven, he had become poor. Though he was mighty God, he had become a helpless baby. This king hadn't come to be the boss. He had come to be a servant. And if that's not enough, we get to hear John's version. And so John, he likes to tell the story kind of from what we've been calling the upper story perspective. He takes more of a 30,000 foot kind of God's eye view, and he speaks to both 
Jews and Greeks in just a beautiful way. And listen to the beginning of, of the book of John. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, you ever heard that phrase before? In the beginning? We've heard that before, right? It's the very first words of the whole Bible. It's the very first part of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so, any Jewish listener immediately knew what he was saying. John was saying, this Jesus, he, is, he, he didn't begin in Bethlehem. He goes way back. He is eternal, like the Father and the Holy Spirit are eternal. This is God himself. And in verse 3, he says, Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Now John also calls Jesus the Word, as in verse 14, The Word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Greek word here is logos, which from which we get words like logic. And the Greeks had a great passion and a reverence for uh, reason and truth. Uh, the philosopher Heraclitus, who lived in Ephesus, he's the, we know him for his quote that says, You never step in the same river twice. Well, he, he once said that uh, logos is omnipotent wisdom that steers everything. Plato offered the possibility that a word, a logos, may one day usher forth from God. So when John calls Jesus the Word, he's saying to the Jews, you know what? The same God who spoke and with his words created this whole world. He's speaking again, and he's doing a new thing again, and he's creating something special again. And pay attention. And he's also saying to the Greeks, you know what? You're on, you're on the right track with this Logos thing, because you know what? There is an omnipotent wisdom that steers everything and ushers forth from God. And he actually has a name. His name is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. And I just find that so brilliant how he does that. And uh, he just basically says, the king is here and he's for everybody. He's for everybody. And so, you know, the Christmas story, it's about a lot of things. It's about peace and love and joy and gentleness and kindness and goodwill and humility and, you know, layered on top of those are these secondary kind of sometimes helpful, sometimes harmful things like family and tradition and gifts and sentimentality. But, you know, none of that's a main point, is it? I mean, this is kind of why we had to take off the hat, right? We say it every year. We kind of drill down uh, on or just before Christmas. But honestly, I, I feel like a lot of times it's too late at that point. We, we miss it. What if in March we could be free to really ponder this reality and not miss it? That whatever else the Christmas story is about, it is first and foremost a story about the birth of the king. And not a king, but the king with a capital K. The promised Messiah, the one who would come and speak truth and save and lead and set things to rights. He's here. The wait is over. And this is, this is just huge news. Finish this sentence. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Look at how Luke begins his Christmas story in uh, chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Luke launches into his orderly account by making it just very clear that Jesus was born in the days of Caesar Augustus, the successor of Julius Caesar. Caesar isn't a family name. It's a, it's a title. Caesar, it, it means Roman emperor. Quite simply, it's the Latin word for king. 
And the people claim that Caesar Augustus in particular was no ordinary king. He was called, and I quote, the one who is to come, the divine king of salvation for whom mankind has waited, the son of God, the one who would rid the world of evil and renew humanity. So Luke knows that these guys have been hearing this stuff, and he says, you know what, there's a new guy on the scene, and he, not Augustus, is actually the promised one and the hope of the world and the son of God. In addition to Caesar... Uh, there were all kinds of lesser kings that Rome kind of allowed uh, to rule as regional governors, such as King Herod. Matthew 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. He's known as Herod the Great, but he was not great by God's standard. He, he was known as king of the Jews, but he wasn't even really a Jew. He was an outsider who was loyal first to himself and then to Rome. Uh, he did not give a rip about God's ways or God's people. The Romans... Uh, propped him up because he kept order, which he did with great brutality. He had his wife and two of his sons and two of his brothers uh, murdered for personal and political gain. On his deathbed, he ordered the execution in an arena of many prominent citizens of his kingdom just because he wanted to make sure there was a lot of mourning at the time of his death. He lived in luxury and built palaces, which he paid for by taxing and taxing and taxing the people. Historians tell us that folks like Mary and Joseph uh, may have been taxed at rates up to like 80 or 90 percent. And so with April 15th around the corner, here's a word of hope today. It could be worse. <laughs> so Jesus was born into this setting. Augustus and Herod are on their thrones and they're calling the shots. And Jesus, God's people are suffering and they're waiting and they're living their lives and they're trying to keep their faith in spite of the long years of God's silence and in spite of the brutality of the kings that rule over them. And they long for a good king to rule because they know that when a good king sits on the throne, there's joy in the land. But these other kings are on their throne still and because they say so, Joseph helps his pregnant fiance up onto a donkey and they journey to Bethlehem to report for the census. And now Bethlehem is another word we've heard before. It's known as the city of, anybody know? David, King David, the one through whom the promised Messiah would eventually come. Uh, someone familiar with the story might remember something like Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. says, I, this is God. I, God, made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And someone familiar with the story might also remember these words from the prophet Micah. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. We just need to be noticing the king theme going on here, right? The story is practically screaming it. And that's, I'm guessing, why the people who chose to title uh, to organize this book and, and give this chapter a title, they didn't choose to say the birth of the Savior or the birth of the Son of God. They called it the birth of the King. The coming of the Messiah King was something that God's people have been looking for and pointing to for a long, long time. Uh, I don't know if you know, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, all spread all throughout it, that point to this coming King, and Jesus fulfilled all of them. You know, uh, he was to be a descendant of Abraham and of King David. He was to be born in Bethlehem and born of a virgin, honored and paid tribute by foreign kings, worshipped by shepherds. He was to enter the temple, to flee to and return from Egypt. That's just eight of them. 
And um, I'm just going to go ahead and read all 300 if that's all right. No, I won't do that. But you just know this is, this is no small thing. You've got to know that this, what this means is that either A, there's an impossibly massive and complex hoax being played, and we're still falling for it today, or B, Jesus really was the king that these people have been waiting for. So the story of this baby born in a barn in Bethlehem, it seems to me that it really is the story of the birth of the king. And if this is true, if what Luke and John and Matthew are trying to tell us is true, then it changes everything. It changes everything. Um, listen to what one man wrote after he came to believe that Jesus was the true king. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed, to, appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the opening lines of Paul's letter to the Romans, which is sort of like, a lot of people call this Paul's gospel. It's kind of his manifesto of faith. It's, uh, it's his unique camera angle on the Jesus story. And, and interesting here, uh, the word that's translated Lord is the same word for Caesar. It's just the word for king. And Paul is writing this letter and sending it to Rome. And all these years later, without the right context, we can kind of miss that. I mean, this, you know, this was a confrontation. Them, them's fighting words, right? And everyone who read this letter and, or heard it read in, in their church gatherings, they were faced with a decision. Who is king? And this was an urgent, all-encompassing, life-direction-changing, life-or-death decision for these people. But you know, that's not really the case for you or me, or is it? Where does this leave us? I think it leaves us with another important question. Not, uh, not just was Jesus king or not, not just is he still king or not, but is he our king? Is he my king? Is he your king? If he is, there are some major implications and, we, and to talk about them today, I thought we would look to uh, a classic Christmas song called Joy to the World. In 1719, an English hymn writer named Isaac Watts published a collection of hymns called the Psalms of David, which each hymn was based on a different biblical psalm. And this tradition of using biblical psalms in Christian worship goes all the way back to the beginning uh, of church history. And he chose, uh, he was motivated to write Joy to the World by Psalm 98, which is about joy. Verse 1 says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Verses 4 through 6 say, Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Watts, other songs have kind of slipped away into obscurity, but this one especially when they added this beautiful melody that we know in 1836, it really stuck. It has become uh, one of perhaps our most beloved and well-known Christmas song, eclipsing even such classics as Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer for a special place in our hearts, right? This song stirs something in us. And we're going to look at it today to kind of answer that so what question 
about the Christmas story. If it is true that the righteous king has really been born to us, it means many things, but we're just going to focus on two things today that it means for us. And the first is this, joy to the world. Joy to the world. The arrival of a baby brings joy. Even in the toughest circumstances, it is only the most hard-hearted of people who can't find a reason to celebrate a baby's birth. And you know, the arrival of a royal baby, well, that's an even bigger deal. And the arrival of a new king, well, that is, that is good news of great joy. Gospel is just a word that means good news. And let's remember how all the different characters in the gospel accounts reacted to this news. The angels, they showed themselves to this, to this world and they sang. Mary, she sang a beautiful song that we got to read this week. And it's called the, we call it the Magnificat. It's, it's a beautiful Joseph, he had a wedding, threw a big party, and got married. Wise men, they gladly gave away some of their most treasured possessions. And shepherds, they could not wait to go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. And I just wonder if you're able today to receive this birth announcement with joy. Or has it been crowded out by jingle bells and overdue bills? You know, a couple of weeks ago, we learned from the great, uh, the great leader, Nehemiah, as he led the people in rebuilding the wall. And I do this hesitantly and very humbly, but I, wanna, I have to correct our senior pastor, Ben, on a theological point here. He said Nehemiah was the shortest guy in the Bible. But that's actually not true. He's maybe the second shortest guy. The shortest guy in the Bible is actually from the book of Job. His name is Bildad the Shuhite. That's really not that important, but I thought y'all should know. So I love what Nehemiah told the people. He said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I wonder if that's true of you. You know, if it's not, I'm, what I'm not trying to tell you is that you need to manufacture it. You need to drum up some joy and figure it out. And I'm not trying to tell you to fake it. Be real. But I am asking you and challenging you that if the joy of God is not a fruit that grows from the tree of your life, that's probably something to be examined and pursued. I'm not talking about pleasure or happiness, but the kind of godly in any circumstances, at the end of the day, the good king is on the throne, joy that comes from life in Christ. And if that's something you need to spend some time with God on, please do. You know, I would highly encourage anyone to go back and check out the sermon from our, from our summer produce series back on June 30th on joy. Because the scriptures, echoed by these great hymns of the church, they don't just recommend joy to us. They command us to rejoice at the news of Jesus' birth. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come to us. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, the Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace. If the King is born, it's time to rejoice. And don't forget this part, joy to the world. True joy is something that, that can't help but be shared. You know, part of uh, Isaac Watts' inspiration for writing Joy to the World was how Psalm 98 speaks of God's gift not only to Israel but to the whole world. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And if your, Christ, if your Christmas joy is just kind of, it's really about you and yours, then I'm telling you that it is a shadow 
of what it could and should be because God wants to reshape it and unleash it into a missional kind of joy that's going to cause you to actually give a flip about your lost and lonely neighbors. And it's going to cause them to see something in you that might make them actually give a flip about this faith that you say you have. Joy to the world. Missional living is living as if God rules the whole world. And the joy of Christ is contagious. And if this is just something that doesn't characterize your life, then, you know, if it's something you need to spend some time with God on. Because he wants to give you that. Joy to the world. And then secondly, I would just say, let earth receive her king. It's great news that we humans don't have to come up and produce a, uh, a worthy king from among us. We've seen how those efforts end up. But what we do have to do is receive him. Just as with all of God's good gifts, like forgiveness and salvation and grace, we have the responsibility of receiving it. We can't make God give us that stuff. Nothing we can do. He does that because he can and because he wants to. But it's like if you came to me and threw me something, I can either, I can either catch it and receive it, I can just let it hit me and bounce off onto the floor. And it, it kind of works like that. So what does it mean for the earth to receive the king? Well, if we let it get a little more personal and specific, I think it means this. Let every heart prepare him room. I remember when we uh, found out we, we would be, we were, when we were expecting our first child, we found out we would be parents for the first time. This is a crazy mix of feelings that come rushing in. There was joy at the gift of it. There was wonder at the, just the, you see the sonogram, and it's like, wow, it's a new life. There was excitement over the possibilities. There was sheer terror at the responsibility and the expense. I just remember uh, when we found out we were going to have a little girl, what we did was we began to prepare her room. We got a rocking chair, some other stuff. We looked at some feeding troughs, but ended up going with a pack and play. Uh, and we painted the room. I spent several hours painting those walls. And as I did, I, yeah, I was preparing her room. You know, I was getting her bedroom ready. But I was also preparing her room. I was making room for her in my heart, in my life. And I'm not ashamed to tell you guys that I spent some time, I mean, I spent some serious time just painting and crying. <laughs> uh, and there were tears of joy and gratitude with a healthy dose of, dear God, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> and I painted some walls, and they got, they got painted, but the real work that got done was the work that God did on my heart to prepare it for the great gift he was re getting ready to give. There's a cool tradition in Mexico where we lived uh, for several years, uh, maybe in other places too, I don't know, where um, the nativity scenes, they leave the baby Jesus out actually right up until Christmas. So all through Advent and the you know, Christmas season, you see these nativity scenes and <laughs> Mary and Joseph and the shepherds are like bowed down in worship and there's like nothing there. So it's an empty feeding trough. And the first time I saw this, I was like, oh no, somebody stole baby Jesus. And I was like, how? How low can you get? I just, I was so mad. And uh, then I started seeing it in other places. And then when I reported to some of the locals about the baby Jesus bandit, you know, they just, they rolled their eyes and explained the tradition to me. But what they do 
is leave, they, they, they wait until Christmas to put him there because it just builds this sense of anticipation for his birth. And now we do that. At least one of the, the major scenes that we put out in our home, uh, we leave baby Jesus out right up until Christmas Day. And it just helps us to create some space and to prepare him room. So what do you need to do in your life this week and between now and Christmas to prepare him room? Do you need to get yourself a Jesus Storybook Bible? Do you need to paint a wall? Do you need to look at an empty manger? Forgive somebody? Serve somebody? I hope that some time and energy will go into our personal, private, you know, prayer and devotional lives around this topic. And I hope that our families and small groups, uh, I hope that we'll help one another to fully embrace the birth of the King and its implications on our lives. Because what does a king do? A king rules. A king reigns. He calls the shots. He sets a plan and a policy, and everyone either obeys or doesn't. And there's something I think that's deeply true about you and me is that we each have a little throne in our heart. It's not literally true. If so, see a cardiologist immediately. But you know what I mean. We have a little throne, a little oval office, a little driver's seat, a little mission control center in the center of who we are in our heart. And each of us chooses who gets to sit in the big chair. And, you know, I'm, I'm haunted by one of the lines we read earlier from the Jesus Storybook Bible about evil King Herod. It said he didn't want anyone to be king except him. And it's a sobering reminder that possibly the ultimate spiritual reality of our lives might just boil down to this. The battle within me over who gets to sit on the throne. Is it me or is it God? And he lets me choose. I just want to urge you today to give up that seat to Jesus because he's the king but also just because he's good and he's worthy and he can be trusted and he loves us. And when a good king sits on the throne, there's joy in the land. And when a good king sits on the throne of your heart, there can be joy in your life. Funny thing, uh, Joy to the World was never intended to be labeled as a Christmas song. It's just a Christian song. And it's true in March, and it's true in December, and it's true all throughout the year, and it's true down through the ages. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. The King is born. Let earth receive him. Let every heart prepare him room. And let us pray. God, we are so thankful for your great love. We are thankful that you come to us. That you would stoop down and become a baby to show us how much you love us. We are so thankful for the Christmas story and today's opportunity to hear it anew. Lord, help us to live in it year-round. God, help us to prepare you room. Help us as a community and as individuals to allow you in your rightful place on the throne of our lives. Thank you for your presence even with us now. 
And we pray in the name of the King. Amen.